Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount Plus. I'm in a period of emotional upheaval. Let's have all the oh, I don't care crap. A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm gonna steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, rated PG-13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Terramont Plus. Welcome to the Maris Review. What a joy it is to be joined today by Stephanie Land, who is the author of the New York Times bestseller, Made, Hard Work, Low Pay, and a Mother's Will to Survive, called A Testimony Worth Listening to by the New York Times, an inspiration for the Netflix series, Made. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, The Guardian, The Atlantic, and many other outlets. Her writing focuses on social and economic justice and parenting under the poverty line. And her new memoir is called Class. Stephanie, I'm so glad I got to talk to you today. Yeah, you too. Uh, apologies. I'm, I'm a little bit hoarse <laughs> from uh, talking a lot these days. <clears throat> I, I, I love that for you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I hope you can get a lot of tea. Yeah. I was hoping we could talk in in your acknowledgments. You, you say that this book is about what you call your hungriest year. And I'm hoping you could set the scene a little bit. I, of course, you're talking about physical hunger, but but there's there's more to it than that. I think I'm a big fan of words with double meanings. <laughs> Probably obvious by now, but the hunger in that case was definitely physical hunger, but also just a hunger for acceptance and a hunger for a degree in higher education. And um and just having the life that so many other people just kind of, it felt like they just effortlessly had it. And and I struggled almost every minute of the day to just get a little bit of of the way there. Yeah, you, you write so beautifully about living with uncertainty and you have a roller coaster metaphor that you use uh, throughout the book. And that that makes a lot of sense. You get to the top and you're feeling hopeful and then you tunnel down. I often would use a metaphor like a, a rug being pulled out from underneath me. But when you're doing all of this and, and going deeply into debt and trying to get this degree in higher education, it it really does feel like that like it's it's a lot more than just a rug being pulled out from underneath you it's 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 you're you're continuously on this ride of both hope and you know getting to the place where you're trying to get to and then all of a sudden you're just very very far away from it again you talk a lot in the book about our country and our society is very fucked up uh idea of the quote-unquote deserving poor and how someone who needs assistance is is supposed to act um tell me about that I mean it seems like you've dealt with many judgmental people in in your life yeah the deserving poor to me is a person 
who found themselves in a circumstance um, without any effort on their own part. Like uh, a single mom who is that way because her husband died tragically trying to rescue the family dog in a fire. Like she is deserving poor. Like she is the type who, you know, we, we have GoFundMe's for, we, you know, everybody gathers together to support her, but a single mom who decided to get with this guy who was really awful and then left him and was homeless and, and is now trying to go to college. Like I, I didn't really feel like I was ever deserving poor. I was, well, you made bad decisions. And so now you made your bed and you have to lay in it. Basically it, it very, I, I even felt that way with writing my first book. I, I almost felt like I needed to present this, this story that was like apologetic and, and kind of a, a please, sir, may I have some more type of Oliver Twist, you know, type of thing. And with this book, I, I felt like I could be a little angry. So I was going to, I was going to wait till later to ask you about this and we'll go back to judgmental people. But one of the real thrills of reading this book is you are finally in a position where you can write whatever the fuck you want (laughs) and um, you don't have to worry about consequences overwhelmingly. How does that feel? Tell me all about that. I do like to tell myself that I'm not going to have consequences. It feels like I'm not going to like, but I am a person who lives with anxiety. So the anxiety talks a lot louder sometimes. Um, It felt really good. I didn't even realize that I was still angry about things until I started writing about it. And there are a couple of sections in the book that I kind of refer to as like a, a soapbox type of thing where I'm like getting up on my soapbox and, and yelling about this thing that has always like really bothered me. And so it was fun. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I, I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed writing about being angry and I know from experience and just my job as a public speaker, I, I go out and I, I talk to a lot of people all across the country and angry people, especially angry people of color are often ignored um, and pushed aside and silenced. And so I thought I had the opportunity to, to raise an angry voice in a way that people might listen to and possibly even accept. Yeah. I, I mean, that all goes back to the idea of deserving poor, uh, a deserving poor person wouldn't be angry. They'd be easygoing and grateful for whatever scrap it seems. Yeah. Yeah. I, I very much felt like I, I, I just needed to shut up and, and be happy. And one of the things that is so frustrating about your experience with governmental agencies and the family court system you're doing so much. They come at you from uh, a position of suspicion, it seems. And you're constantly having to prove your worthiness rather than I feel like I'm involved in a couple of mutual aid groups. And when people ask for things, we just assume that because they have to ask for them, that that they need them. 
Uh, and if not, we're we're not really trying to figure out who's scamming us. That's really nice of you. <laughs> I mean, that assumption was never made about me. I I don't think. I mean, I if it was, it wasn't obvious. Um, but when you're asking for uh, food stamps, for example, I mean, they they ask if you have a burial plot. They ask um, the value of your car. They ask if you have any jewelry that might have some value. And it's so embarrassing and invasive, but you're doing it so that you can feed your child. And and that part of it is just, it became so normal for me to have to answer all of these questions. And someone pointed out a couple of weeks ago that maybe that extended to writing because it's just like people tell me I'm brave for like writing about all these personal things. But I started to think about it and I'm just like, but I've been doing that forever. <laughs> like I've been telling everybody everything for a long time. I was going to say memoir is kind of the form that asks your reader or maybe doesn't ask but in which readers come to the experience perhaps more judgmental than not yeah well and i i feel like when it's a woman writing a memoir the judgment is on the person and not so much on the writing or or how well it's written even like it's always it's it's me who's scrutinized. It's not my ability to write a story. Absolutely. And and so you're studying creative nonfiction in, in this in this book, and you are also writing creative nonfiction. And I'm wondering if you could talk about crafting the experience of, of learning. I don't know. I, I think it's kind of it's really tempting to like go totally meta. And, and write about writing process and, and like how you actually do it. In this book, though, I thought it was important to show when I actually had time to do that. Because writing itself, just the process, takes a lot of mental space. It takes a lot of thinking and, and just um, a clear head sometimes. And I, I didn't have that. Uh, and so the only times that I had it, um, I really had to take advantage of it. And so I thought that part of it was interesting as far as this book. Yeah. you. I mean, talk about a skill that more writers, I'm sure, wish they had, um, but but that was just um, urgent for you to, to grasp was writing quickly, not not staring at a blank page for too long, just like knowing that you had an assignment and, and you're going to do it. Yeah, I learned to, I always carried around a little moleskin. I had like a moleskin day planner, but then I also had like a a really small, just the the smallest one that they have. And, and I would write down sentences. I would like take notes. I would do, I'd come up with a title that way. And so I would just like, whenever I, Whenever I had the chance, I would I would write something down. And then when it came time to write it all out, I kind of used that as an outline. And I did that as a freelancer too. And it just, it was a very useful skill <laughs> in that sense too. Because even working as a freelance writer, 
I would um, spend all day with my kids. And then as soon as they were asleep at night, I would um, get all of these essays out that I had promised editors all day. And yeah, for 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 much of the book, you, you're contemplating getting an MFA in the hopes that there will be more to learn there, more opportunity there. And one of the things that you had to sort of learn on your own, it seems, is like learning to actually how to make money as as a writer, which um, is a practical skill I think more of us could use. Yeah, they they really don't teach the business of writing, period. I mean, it's it's hard even as a freelancer to find any class. And and it's I don't know why. Like I I don't know why it's this. It almost feels like it's a secret or it's like part of some level of network that like I didn't have access to. Or to me, it felt like you start making money once you're successful. But then how do you get successful and how do you support yourself while you're on that you know path? And but it also I was told, you know, words were thrown around like commercial and money or writing for money. I got the sense um, cheapened the writing in some way, <laughs> but I, it just, I couldn't understand why you wouldn't want to make money at writing. Like, isn't that supposed to be the dream? Like you find a way to turn your hobby into a career. Yeah. And, and that, that really does go back to, I mean, even the the questions on in the marketing copy for your book. It, it's the idea of who who gets to to be a writer, who gets to turn their pursue their hobbies in the hopes that one day there will be money to be made from them. Well, I mean, arguably, I think a lot of what we consume just on our phones can be counted as art. And and someone was paid to create content. I mean, hopefully they were. And the the graphics part of it and and display and and all of that, that that is art. That is, but how do you get from graduating from college to having a job like that? And I think it's something that's um kind of taken advantage of or or taken for granted. I think a lot of people don't think about the fact that just one podcast or or one like newspaper article that's printed online, I mean, that could that is an artist. And but when there are budget cuts, the arts and humanities is the first thing to go. Another aspect of the book that you portray so well and so boldly is is the loneliness involved not only in having to worry about food security and, and housing security, but but also even just being a little bit older than than the people in your writing classes who then have unlimited time to just hang out. <laughs> <laughs> well, I made that assumption. I did feel incredibly out of place all the time. I think it was because since I had taken out loans, I had grants, I had scholarships, it felt like 
I didn't belong there in some way because I wasn't paying out of pocket for it. I hadn't earned it. I didn't deserve it. I felt very much like an imposter because of that. Like I was already taking up so much time and resources and space. And it just, and then, you know, to add being hungry to that, it's hard to walk around in the world normally when you're hungry. But when you're supposed to be paying attention uh, through a lecture and and you're hungry and you don't know if you're going to be able to eat, you know, in the next couple of hours, like until you get home because you don't have any money or, you know, whatever. It just kind of puts you in this bubble. And so I, I just, I felt very separate from my classmates in that sense. And yet one of, one of the most joyful parts in the book is your depiction of your daughter, Amelia, and her burgeoning personality. And I'm, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about like the idea of when can she have a treat? When, when can you have a treat? (laughs) How do we dole those out when, when, when you're food insecure? Yeah, there was a, one of the very first reviews of my book, it was on Goodreads and I know you're not supposed to look, I know, (laughs) Um, but I did. And, and this lady was really upset that I, I gave my daughter ice cream and, and that was like, I knew people were going to be upset about a lot of things in this book. You know, a lot of people think poor people just cannot have nice things at all. And, and so like, I gave them a lot of nice things to get upset about. And, but the ice cream, like that really struck me as odd. Like, why would you be upset that my kid got like a $2 scoop of ice cream every once in a while? And it it was, we had an ice cream shop that had just opened and it was like a block away from our house. And, and so we went there all the time. So I, I don't know. That one still confuses me. Like, I, I don't know, especially a five-year-old, like she deserves some ice cream. Like she's entitled to ice cream. <laughs> so I, I don't understand that one. Absolutely. In, in talking about her and, and then of course, um, your second daughter who, whose, whose birth you talk about in the book, um, one of your teachers and you name names, but I don't, I don't even feel like we need to right here. Um, said babies don't belong in grad school as if, uh, universal childcare <laughs> was a thing and you chose to, um, to bring your kid anyway. Tell me about that. Well, I got the sense the phrase, the babies don't belong in grad school was not just like in a physical sense, like in class, it was like people with children should not be in grad school. And I don't know, it just kind of fed into this very blatant gatekeeping that happens in academia of who are the people who decide who gets accepted and who doesn't. And for me, it was 
the MFA was supposedly the the secure job placement eventually, hopefully. And it was going to be like, that was the next step in basically how to make money as a writer. Like I thought that that was the only way was you get your MFA and then you teach and then you write a book in your free time. And so I included that part of the book because I, I really do think it's important to show the decision-making and, and who actually makes those decisions and who gets accepted and who doesn't. And then it's not to give anything away, but um, given where you are in your career now and given what, what school you did and didn't attend, what a nice message <laughs> for aspiring writers who um, might not have the time, money, or inclination to, to go to grad school. Yeah, a lot of people ask me if I had had a choice or like if what I would tell someone who wants to go to school or wants to go to grad school, if it's worth it or not. And I never really know how to answer. There's no like blanket statement for that. Like it could be very much worth it to one person and not another. There are a lot of things that college cannot replace you can arguably read all the books and write all the essays and all of that, but there's really nothing that can replace the environment and possible cohort and relationships and stuff like that. But all I really had was, was the physical space. I, I didn't, I didn't have a lot of the camaraderie or relationships with classmates and, um, and so I really wanted to show just what it's like to experience college without having access to activities outside of school or like a to show that there's kind of a hidden curriculum and, and an impossible amount of like vocabulary and understanding that some people might have because their parents went to college. But I I didn't grow up knowing what it was like to go to college. So I, I think I missed out on a lot. Which you convey so thoughtfully and beautifully in this book. Before, before I let you go, will you please recommend some books for us? Absolutely. Um, I'm a huge fan of Matthew Desmond, who wrote Evicted and then Poverty by America. Mayor Michael Tubbs, The Deeper the Roots. He went on to start a program in California called End Poverty in California. And I think the book that I read most recently that really affected me and I think about all the time is Ashley C. Ford's uh, Somebody's Daughter. It's just a brilliant, brilliant book. I wanted to read it again as soon as I finished it. Agreed. Stephanie, Say no more. <laughs> I'm so Class. sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. Class is out now and uh, you're going to want to read it. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.